The views and opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not represent or reflect the official policy or position of the Ticket Paycheck Foundation and podcast. All information shared is from personal experiences and does not constitute medical advice. We do not take responsibility for any statements expressed during the podcast. Take a pain check does not endorse any products or services. Any said products or services mentioned on this podcast may not be suitable for you or your condition. Please consult with your physician if you have medical questions, as it may pertain to your condition. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to this week's episode on Take a Pain Check. I'm so excited to have Dawn joining me today. Hi, Dawn. Can you give me a brief injection about yourself? Tell me a little bit about your education, your career, and what you've been up to recently. Okay, great. Hey, Natasha. Thanks for having me. Um, So my name is Dawn Richards. I am uh, privileged to live and work in Toronto, and I guess I just want to say that it is the home today of um, many Indigenous peoples, um, Métis and Inuit peoples, and it's been their land um, far longer than I have lived here. I actually have a PhD in analytical chemistry, so I'm a very basic scientist by training. And I think what we'll talk today about is how um, my diagnosis with rheumatoid arthritis really changed my career and my life. Wow, that's so interesting, analytical chemistry. So you do enjoy chemistry. <laughs> Only some parts of chemistry. I, I'll be honest with you, I never liked organic chemistry. Me too, because I was like, oh God, how am I going to have like the next conversation with you? I'm kidding. But anyways, so you do have rheumatoid arthritis. When were you diagnosed? So I was diagnosed back in 2006. Um, and just so that your audience knows, I was in my early 30s at that time. And I had now, when I look back, I know I had symptoms for at least a couple of years before my diagnosis. And what were those symptoms that kind of led you to see or go to a healthcare professional for help? My primary symptoms were I had um, swelling in my hands and my feet. Um, and I had, it, it showed up strangely in my hands where it'd be like, one finger, I, I couldn't bend like for the whole week. Um, and then the next week, it would be the same finger on the other hand, which was really spooky and weird at the same time. Um, I was also really, really tired. So I was working at a biotech company at the time, Natasha, and I would have to have I'd have a nap at lunch. Um, so I'd book like a meeting room and I'd go and I put my head down for like half an hour. And like, I would fall asleep too um, when I was at, at work having an actual nap. So uh, those were some of the big things. Um, I guess I did have like stiffness in my joints as well and in my wrists and my hands and my feet, but I didn't really have a word for it at the time. I I didn't know exactly what it was. So I went to the doctor a few times over a number of years um, and she, my family physician, finally strung things together for me. Thank goodness. Wow. So a nap during work time. And I've talked to a lot of people like recently with Kappa, we had the Twitter live event. It's about accommodations in the workplace. And I know Annette and also Mm -hmm. Michael, they both mentioned 
that it would be so nice to have like a nap room in workplaces because for people that do need like accommodations or just like tired in general it doesn't have to be someone with a chronic illness because it could be very generalized too i think it was like what is your wish list and michael was like nap room would be great and i'm like yeah that sounds like a pretty good idea because i think just like generalizing some of those workplace accommodations so you don't feel alone too that you need it making it more normalized so you don't feel like oh i just took a nap and like what is everyone else thinking of me i think that'd be so cool yeah and i do know some places where they they do have like rooms where people can go off and have a nap or i've um, heard of other companies where they have uh like those um, motorized massage chairs that you you like you can book the room and you can go in there for like a half an hour or something so you don't actually have to use the chair right you could have a nap in the chair you've just booked the room kind of thing so yeah it and you're right it's not just for people who have some kind of chronic disease but like many people just get tired but um our fatigue i think you know is like a whole nother level of like how am i going to get through like the next minute i don't even know how i'm going to dress myself i don't know how i'm going to like walk to a meeting it's um it's pretty debilitating especially when you know you know, this, this like, isn't quite normal. Right. And then you mentioned symptoms in your hands and your feet and same for me, like it's definitely, even with like my JIA, it started with my hands and my feet. How did your symptoms evolve? Because you were diagnosed quite a long time ago. Yeah. So I'm really lucky. I've been, um, in what's considered clinical remission for many, many years. So generally I don't have symptoms except I'll argue I still have fatigue. I have, a, again, a different level of tiredness, but most of the swelling and the stiffness and those types of things, I actually haven't felt for, for many years. And so I'm really, really lucky that I think when I was diagnosed, I was hit really hard with a number of medications and um, hopefully they put my RA in a place where it, I think it's just always kind of like sleeping, right? Because I never know, like if I'm stressed out, if it's going to come back, if I don't know, the air quality where I live isn't great. So it's going to come back. So, you know, over time, when I went on meds, when I first was diagnosed, obviously the swelling and some of those symptoms started to decrease and the pain for sure that was associated with those symptoms changed. Um, and then I remember just one day thinking like, I don't feel it anymore, which was weird after feeling different types of symptoms for quite some time. You're kind of praying, okay, like we don't want to wake the rheumatoid arthritis up, let it sleep, please. <laughs> And then it's hard to kind of navigate, okay, like what will trigger that? But also you don't even want to think about it. Yeah. If you think about it, I feel like you're kind of putting it on yourself. Okay, this can possibly come back. So you try to distract your mind. What was your medication journey that kind of led you eventually to the clinical remission? But how did you make that decision with your physician? When I was first diagnosed, I, I wasn't really shocked, Natasha. Like after having symptoms for a couple of years and then working with my family doctor to put things together. Um, I, I guess I figured, you know, for someone my age, this wasn't like, this wasn't normal when we put all the symptoms together and uh, maybe relief is one word around receiving a diagnosis, which is kind of strange because it's like, I, I got diagnosed with a chronic disease. So I'm going to live with it in some form for the rest of my life. But at the same time, I have an answer for what it is. And so 
my physicians can work with me to help um, treat me. And I think at the start, I just really listened to my rheumatologist who was considered a global leader um, in, in the area and had seen thousands of people and diagnosed thousands of people before I was diagnosed. So I think for me, I really trusted um, my rheumatologist and, you know, he was really good in terms of he would answer any question I had, right? Like my first appointment, I think when I was diagnosed was a couple of hours. Like he wasn't going to let me go anywhere until I had answers to things and felt as okay as I could be about things. And so when he said to me, like, this is what the science says, and this is what I think you should go on. uh, it, It really wasn't a question for me, except one of the medications I was allergic to. So um, I basically just said like, okay, this is something that I have to do and I have to try and see where it can go and work, work with my, um, rheumatologist to see what, what I can do. And it's not often that easy to find a good rheumatologist or a rheumatologist that's compatible with your values and your beliefs. And so I'm glad that you didn't have to go through that hard time, but is your rheumatologist still the rheumatologist that you have today? He actually retired at the start of the pandemic, not because of the pandemic, um, but uh, he did retire. And so now I have a rheumatologist who I, is, a, is a few years younger than me. I don't know exactly how old she is, but she's definitely a few years younger than me. And so the relationship is interesting because my former rheumatologist, was more my dad's age. So it was like, okay, like, you know, there's like this authoritative kind of relationship, like not completely. Um, but you know, there's a different relationship when it's someone who's your dad's age, um, versus someone who's around your age, um, who has a career and kids and everything else. And so it's been a really interesting transition, especially it happening during the pandemic. Um, and so the last few appointments I've had have been the first ones in person and all that kind of stuff. But I just know the relationship is just different. Like I feel much more open about certain topics with um, a rheumatologist who's a woman and who's my age um, than I would have felt asking, yeah, someone who's my dad, basically. <laughs> It kind of has the same logic for all the different types of physicians you see, because like, for example, if a family doctor is a male versus a female, it's always like important to make sure that you are trying to be as comfortable and open and honest as possible. My um, family doctor is also a woman. And so, yeah, it's just interesting. I think um, it just makes it easier to communicate knowing that they um, have been through some of the same things you've been through. and maybe see things similarly. I I agree with you. No matter what their gender, you know, finding someone that you're going to interact with for many, many years in this um, capacity, who you can, you know, you feel like you can trust and you can really ask anything about your condition is super important. And I think it's hard right now with our system because you don't necessarily have the luxury of who your provider is. Um, But I guess I've just been really, really lucky in terms of that aspect of my care, if that makes sense. Can you talk a little bit about the type of work you were doing when you did receive your diagnosis? Yeah. So at first, you know, when I had my symptoms, I was working in a biotech company. So I was doing really basic science and experiments at the bench. 
And um, then I made a transition to more of like project management, working in not-for-profits, seeing what else was out there in terms of my career, because I knew I didn't want to be a bench scientist and I didn't want to be an academic either. Um, Nothing against academics. It just wasn't the life for me. And so when I was diagnosed, uh, it felt like the world put me strangely in the right place at the right time. So I was working for a research network called the Canadian Arthritis Network. um, And I was running the research portfolio there. And so like they gave out grants and awards and they helped, um, they helped researchers to protect uh, their research through patents So through intellectual property, and I got to work on some of those things. So I was, um, I was surrounded by research and healthcare related to arthritis when I was diagnosed, which again, is just really weird and serendipitous to be honest with you. What kind of drew you to work there in the first place? So I I knew I didn't want to be a bench scientist. Um, I was Um, working in biotech and things weren't going great in biotech at the time either. So chances were I was going to get laid off from my job because they were burning through more money um, than they were making at the company I was working at. And um, I knew I didn't want to be an academic. So I kind of took it upon myself to see what other jobs were out there for the education that I had. And so this job just really spoke to me without you know, knowing that I actually had arthritis, um, I was really interested in learning more about intellectual property. I um, helped with partnerships between industry and researchers, and um, I helped on the grants and awards side of things. So things that really interested me that I hadn't worked on before, but as a scientist, I knew about these these things in these spaces. So that's originally why I went to work um, for the Canadian Arthritis and then Network. And then, as I mentioned, as a bonus, I was diagnosed with RA when I actually worked there. But it was kind of cool because I saw like the inner workings of the arthritis um, research community and and the medical community in Canada. And so I've remained involved, even though I've left that job many years ago. And then also because you have this diagnosis, you have a patient perspective. I know it doesn't even sound that great because it's like, but you are still valuable to research now even further. On top of your like research role, you also give a patient perspective as well. So how did that work for you in terms of the roles and the perspectives that you gave at work? I guess maybe just to clarify for the audience, you know, sometimes patients like me, I participate in research. Um, and uh, you know, contribute to research being done by participating in it. And then sometimes I bring my patient perspectives to the research team as a patient partner. And so for me, that's been really gratifying um, because I've been able to work with different research teams that I wouldn't get to as a scientist. Like they're not doing chemistry. Um, they're not doing the kinds of basic work that I've been involved in. But what I did get to bring was like the reality of living with rheumatoid arthritis, what I faced in the healthcare system, what I faced in terms of symptoms and just a different perspective to the team that 
compliments the researchers and the clinicians, the other people on the team that go to school for their training. Instead, I brought my own lived experiences to the table, which I had never seen until I worked for the Canadian Arthritis Network. And I thought, wow, that's that's really cool. I didn't know patients could bring those perspectives to research. And um, that's really stuck with me since then. And I think a lot of us that are involved in like patient partner work, which we can talk about, or even just in research, a lot of people don't know the value that patients have in their voice in research. Can you explain maybe what a patient partner is? Basically, a patient partner is someone who brings their lived experience with a condition they live with, with maybe their healthcare experience. And um, you don't go to school to be a patient partner. Unfortunately, you know, that's thrown on you for in some other capacity. So for me, it's like a way to kind of almost make sense of my diagnosis as well, Natasha, or make something good of it. And so patient partners are often included on research teams. So they'll be team members and they will meet with the people who are doing the research and they'll contribute to the research. And the perspective they bring is, you know, what it, like I said, it might be their healthcare experiences. It might be their experiences living with a certain disease it might be other skills that they have as well, but patient partners aren't necessarily there to, you know, like you may contribute to designing the research question, or you might think about ways that research can improve your lives, but you're certainly not expected to be there in the same capacity that some of the people that have gone to school for many years to be a researcher or to be a physician so you, you just come to the table with a different perspective and one that's equally as valuable as those people who went to school for many years who, who want to be there. And I really truly believe, Natasha, that patient partners bring like such a complementary perspective to the other people on the team. Like I know for a fact my rheumatologist does not live with arthritis, but she does great research in arthritis, right? And she talks to patient partners about her work. And I know that that impacts the way that she carries out her research. So um, yeah, it's interesting. People always say like, I'm just there as a patient partner. I didn't do anything. But actually, just by being there, you do change the behavior of the team, you change how they think, you ask questions that are different from different people on the team. So don't discount what you bring to the research table, that's for sure. This is kind of going into the social side, because I think we already kind of dived into a little bit about research, but I'm wondering if you want to kind of go in depth on like what medications you took, what were the symptoms and side effects that you experienced? Sure. So... Before I was diagnosed with arthritis, I can tell you, I, I really didn't like to take anything even for like a headache. It's like, I'll figure this out without taking some kind of medication. That's probably really stubborn and stupid of me, but that's kind of how I, how I looked at things. When I was diagnosed, um, my rheumatologist talked about um, something called triple therapy, and that was um, putting putting people on and a strong anti-inflammatory um, and then also putting them on things called DMARDs, which are disease modifying medications, right? So they don't, they don't cure um, the arthritis, but they can slow down its progression. 
So I was allergic to one of the medications within that um, triple therapy. And so that right off, right away took it out. So I I really went on double therapy, not on triple therapy. Um, But I got put on an anti-inflammatory and I also got put on something called methotrexate. Um, And people often Google methotrexate. It's it can be used in cancer um, as well, but it's used in much different um, much different doses in cancer than it is in arthritis. Um, but you know, like you Google it and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm on a chemotherapy. But you know, I guess drugs are a form of chemotherapy. Period. So I went on, yeah, a strong anti-inflammatory and I went on methotrexate. I also had done some homework about methotrexate and you can take it as an injection. So um, in my case, I self-injected or you could take it as a pill. And um, so I, I did my own homework and I was given with the choice, like which way do you want to take it? And for me, I thought, like, I don't have really great luck. So if anyone's going to have issues with, like, digesting this medication or, you know, it it creating havoc for my um, digestive system, it's probably going to be me. So I decided to um, take it by injection. And so I learned how to self-inject. And um, I injected for many years until I just got tired of doing that. And then I decided to switch over to a, a pill version of methotrexate. So I'm still on both of those medications today. Um, when I first went on those medications, like it was kind of a shock to my body, right? I, I didn't really take much. Um, and then I was taking things that maybe if you know anti-inflammatories in the long term can cause um, some stomach issues. So you have to watch that. And methotrexate um, can also potentially cause um, issues with your liver. So you get monitored, you take regular blood tests. And so I forgot, I was actually on another um, medication until just over the past couple of years called hydroxychloroquine. And that's a, a drug that can also cause eye issues. And so I um, like it can accumulate in the back of your eye. And so I would go uh, regularly for eye exams. So even though each of those medications had different potential side effects, didn't mean that I was going to have them. Um, I was monitored closely for those side effects. And if I was ever having issues, um, I could reach out to my physician or I could talk to a pharmacist and try and figure things out. So, you know, over the past almost 20 years, um, I've, I've decreased the amounts of those medications that I've been on. One of them I've gone off altogether. Um, and so it's again, just a matter over the years of having discussions with my rheumatologists about how they see my regular blood work looking and help me make any adjustments if I have to. I think the worst part, Natasha, was probably at the start when I first started these medications. Like, this might be too much information, but I had like really awful, like swelling, bloating, like my GI system felt awful all the time. And then, um, then I guess your body just kind of adjusts and it just kind of got, got used to things. The methotrexate, I get really tired too after I had it. I still feel like I have like a hangover the next day. So I figure out how to have it. 
And I've also talked to my rheumatologist and I actually split the doses. So I have half of my pills um, one day before I go to bed. And then I have the rest of my dose the next morning when I wake up and that's made a bit of a difference. So there's like some tips and tricks. You can actually, Kappa actually has a, a tips and tricks sheet that's been medically and scientifically reviewed that might help with methotrexate. And, and um, you can talk to patients about some of the ways that they've found to deal with things um, because we're the ones often that figure it out, right? And I'll definitely link that sheet down below in the description for anyone who's interested in checking that out. I think that'll be such a great resource. I actually just learned things from you too. Like I didn't know that you could kind of split it, but I do know communication with your physician is so important. One of the things I try and think of is that like, you know, your body better than your rheumatologist. Like, you know, you're dealing with it every day. And so it is important sometimes to just like reflect on to your point about medication, like, is this making me feel terrible? Um, I, I don't know. Is it like I was, I said, I was super bloated. I was having issues like that. Like, well, can you give it a chance and see if it can pass? I used to have really thick eyelashes. They're not that thick anymore. Um, I have a lot of hair, so I know it's thinned out over the years. And that part hasn't been a big like a super huge deal for me. But if there are things that are a big deal for you, you know, write them down. That's what I do for all my appointments. I write them down. I bring my list and I talk to my doctor about, you know, what I can within the time that I, that I'm there. And I sure hope that they listen because, you know, these are things that are important for you. They're what you're trying to deal with every day. And, you know, for the most part, my physicians have always been really supportive about um, working with me to see how we can find ways that I can still take the medications I need to because they're helping me, um, but with the kind of minimal side effects um, so that it doesn't get in the way of me, you know, trying to still be productive and have a decent quality of life. And now living in the pandemic, it's like, I, I don't know about where you are, Natasha, but I can make an appointment to get my blood drawn um, at Life Labs. So I live not far from a Life Labs. And I figured out from chatting with them that like fewer people come later in the day. And so like I'm not around as many people. Um, it's it's usually like quicker in and out because I'd be in there first thing in the morning. And even though I have an appointment, I've had to wait like 20, 30 minutes um, and so even those types of things, to your point, like when you do have to schedule those things, figuring out like the best in and out and, you know, what, what can work for you so that a medical appointment or something as simple as giving your regular um, blood, you know, like doesn't take three hours, right? Because you're dealing with enough, um, just trying to deal with the disease you're living with and you don't need to be reminded by sitting at Life Labs and spending <laughs> like an extra two hours to get your regular blood because work because that's also not going to encourage you to keep going, right? Yeah, I didn't think of that at all, but I do see how that could feel like I'm just like thinking about like why am I here? I'm wasting my time, sort of thing. Yeah, and that's it's exactly annoying. What it feels like because I know that in the morning it's better to go like earlier especially for where i live but then it's like i have to wake up at 7 a.m to do this like is this something that i want to do no but i have to do it i'm on methotrexate so like yeah. keeping that in mind that there's a reason why you're doing it and it's important not to miss it 
is so important too because oftentimes it's just like another lab test like does it really matter at the end of the day it does matter it does yeah. yeah i know over the years i've gotten lazy too like oh, i don't feel like going and i know i'm not going as regularly as i should but um you know then my rheumatologist will poke me about how important it actually is right so yeah it's it's important it's I guess sometimes I just take it for granted, which isn't a great thing. And so what are some lifestyle changes that you've made ever since being diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis? For me, exercise has always been really important, Natasha, like even before I was diagnosed. Um, and I found that exercise, I kind of treat it like another medicine, like um, whether I'm walking, whether I'm like, I used to run really long distances. Um, even when I was diagnosed, I would run half marathons and I'd run a couple of marathons as well. Um, and for me over the years, it's been trying to figure out what exercise I still can do. Um, so especially at the start when I had various symptoms, right, it was difficult for me to grab things. So, you know, before that I used to lift weights and when you can't wrap your fingers around the, um, the barbell or the dumbbell, then that, that makes it a challenge. So, um, and doing push-ups was difficult because of my wrists. So what are other things that I could do? Like, how could I adjust things? Um, so that I could still exercise or sometimes I knew I would save, you know, um, if I was running, I would save a longer run for the weekend because I knew that I'd have to have a long nap to recover from it. And so I would kind of schedule things according to when I could do them. So for me, exercise and its importance like has not changed. It's just how I exercise now or what I choose to do. And that might be more a factor of me getting older. Like I, I do more yoga and Pilates now because I think my mobility is um, probably more important to me, but I, I still do lots of weights and I still, I do hit classes and other things that I can. Um, I think also, especially when I was first diagnosed, Natasha, and I started to take medications, I would notice that specific foods would either make those side effects worse, or they might just make me feel worse. And I'm not entirely sure if they affected my arthritis or they just affected me period. Right. So, um, I like, I, I don't know if there's any science or evidence behind this, but I, um, when I was first going on medications, I found that like milk really did a number on me. And so, I decreased like my milk and my cheese intake a lot. Not that I ate like a ton of cheese all the time, right? But I just, I just figured out that that was causing me more issues. And so I, you know, decreased those things and I, you know, supplemented by taking other things or eating other things um, that would give me the same nutritional value, but wouldn't cause like the bloat and all of the issues that I was experiencing. And that has kind of, continued throughout the years um that i would you know there's certain foods um that just like haven't worked for me with my medications that i take and so i've i've just had to figure that out with trial and error um and then to be honest like sleep is like i've never had issues sleeping and then you know before i was diagnosed and early on in my diagnosis 
sleep became even more important to me just to be able to recover and just to be able to do the things that were actually really important for me and um, prioritizing what I really needed to do in the day versus the things that maybe I could do on a weekend or do another time sort of thing. So exercise has always been really important. What I eat has changed over time, I think partly because of the medications I'm on. And then to figuring out like what things I want to do versus what things I actually have to do with the limited energy that I have and being really mindful of that. And I know it sucks to be able to say like, like, I just can't do this. I don't have the energy. I know I'm going to be a wreck tomorrow. I know that that really sucks. Um, but I just, I can't pay the price. I think the other thing too, that's important is, you know, either to do this with, uh, like a professional, right? Um, if you can, if you can talk to a dietitian or a nutritionist, or even just over the years, I've learned a lot about, you know, different food groups and how important they all are in terms of what you're eating, right? So I get it's going to be different for everyone. You might have specific principles about what you want to eat, but I do think it's important too to emphasize that you know, if you decide to cut out a specific type of food because it makes your arthritis feel better, I do think it's important that you find a way to continue to get whatever that type of food group is or the nutritional content of that food group too. And so whether that's, you know, doing a bunch of your own homework or talking to a professional about that, I, I think that's really important too. I feel like there's a lot of resources out there and research that you can do to figure out like what will work for you. And I'm glad that you've kind of figured out what works for you. How do you balance work and family life? Yeah, I'm not very good at this, Natasha. <laughs> Just be super honest with you. So I don't have kids. Um, I'm I'll, I'm too old to have kids at this point anyway. Um, so it's just my husband and myself. And we are both self-employed, which is interesting um, because, you know, that means things can go up and down for both of us. Um, sometimes you have to be more busy than you like to be. But at the same time, you are in charge of your own schedule. So I think I probably work more than I should, but I also really, really enjoy my work and I'm really passionate about it. And it's kind of, you know, it's kind of an extension of me. So um, thankfully I have a partner who's understanding about that and really supportive of my work as well. So I try to work hard, play hard, but I probably work harder. Can you kind of run me through day in your life in your shoes as a researcher with a chronic disease? How do you manage your day-to-day -day activities? For me, I always start the day with a workout, um, except for maybe one day of the week. So usually six out of seven days of the week, the first thing I do is workout. Then I have breakfast, might go for a walk, um, and then I work like quite a few hours in the day. Um, I Since I became self-employed, I work from home or I work from wherever I am. So sometimes I'll have to go and see my clients in their offices during the pandemic that hasn't happened very much. And um, some of them are kind of getting back to a bit more in person, um, but not too much. And being 
I'll just be honest, being immunocompromised, I'm really careful of the environments um, that I'm in right now. So mostly I work a lot um, and work usually involves a number of Zoom meetings throughout the day and a bit of a bit of just regular work. And then, you know, obviously I have lunch, I have dinner, you know, then it's either like I watch a bit of TV, I do a bit of reading, especially over the pandemic, I've gotten back to reading, which has been nice. And um, we used to travel a lot pre-pandemic and we don't do that so much anymore. I think I'm a little more conscious of not only the environments I put myself in um, because I'm really COVID cautious, but also I'm not sure I have to be on a plane as much as I was before. So um, I like to just explore around Ontario, love to ride my bike Um we live close to the lake in Toronto. And so we get down to the lake a lot. And I don't know, it might sound boring to some people, like you're not really exciting, but you know what, to each his own. I like my life. I like just soaking up the little things in life. And that's cool by me. You just need to be in the environment that makes you feel happy. And also that makes you feel like less stressed and you're comfortable and, and so let's jump right into your interest and your initiatives you are the vice president for the canadian arthritis patient alliance when and why did you start getting involved with kappa so i've been involved with kappa probably since about hmm, i think it's about 2012 or so so um after i left the canadian arthritis network as an employee i came back as a patient partner and I volunteered with the organization for quite a few years. Um, that organization had a finite amount of funding from the federal government. And so um, they had, at the time, they called it a consumer advisory council, which consumers are patient partners, basically, just a different name for it. And so with the funding from the Canadian Arthritis Network wrapping up, um, in between 2012 and 2014, the Consumer Advisory Council was looking for like a home for its initiatives and how could, how could it sustain the work it was doing around promoting research, being research partners on teams, um, and generally raising awareness about arthritis. And so some of the members on that council were members of CAPA or the Canadian Arthritis Patient Alliance. And so we decided to kind of merge, I'll say merge, but, you know, the Consumer Advisory Council was going to be disappearing with the research network. And so those of us who really had become involved in that work moved over to help run CAPA as an organization. And CAPA is a little bit different from what the Consumer Advisory Council did because CAPA does, as you know, Natasha, advocate um, to government on behalf of people in Canada who live with arthritis. So we do work related to making sure that drugs that have been approved by Health Canada get on the formularies in Canada, which means they become available to people in different provinces around the country. Um, when COVID hit, we did a lot of work to make sure that COVID vaccines were available to people who lived with arthritis because people who living with arthritis weren't actually included in the clinical trials for vaccines. And so um, the national group that advised on vaccines was actually making a recommendation for us not to have access to COVID vaccines. So we bring a perspective into 
um, policy and government related to um, what it's like to live with arthritis and the needs of people who live with arthritis in Canada. So, and to be honest, the the people that I volunteer with at Kappa have become like really good friends and have helped me find a community of people living with this um, condition or a variety of conditions that I like, I didn't even know were out there. So I'm really, really lucky that I've met the folks I have. Yeah. And they are amazing. Like I said, in one of the meetings and we have a very strong partnership with Kappa. And I think it's very interesting to see how patients can come together and get along so well and make such a big difference for other people living with rheumatic diseases and caregivers and other researchers and healthcare professionals. And we're currently working on a project called Make Room for Youth, which is still in the works, but hopefully we'll be able to give more information about it to our audience. Just talking about the needs of young people living with arthritis, and then I'll also link the Kappa website in the description below for anyone who wants to take a look at the work that they do and see how they can get involved or get the resources that they do need because they do create amazing resources. And so you also work with a variety of institutions to lead patient engagement work. Why is this work important to you? And can you talk a little bit about the patient engagement and research modules at the CIHR IMHA? Okay, that's a mouthful, right? So yep. um, we talked a little bit about the fact that I'm self-employed. And so that's really been shaped by my own diagnosis as a patient. And what that's made me realize um, over the years is how research and researchers have been fairly insular from the people who their, um, their work is trying to benefit or the conditions that they're even trying to study. And so when I was at the Canadian Arthritis Network, I saw how much people living with arthritis could impact research and could make a difference in the research world. So when I started my own company, a lot of the work that I was doing and I do today is helping researchers or organizations like research institutes or even um, health networks to work with patients as partners. And so I'd seen and been involved in some experiences that weren't really great um, in terms of being a patient partner. People don't, I mean, they mean well, but they don't necessarily understand the types of things that would be helpful for patient partners to um, better their engagement or their experience. And so one of those things, for example, is paying them for their time and their skill. Um, that's been something that I've done a lot of work on. So I help people and organizations engage patients um, on their research teams and in their research initiatives. And I've been fortunate for the past few years to work for um, the Canadian Institutes of Health Research, which is CIHR, their Institute of Musculoskeletal Health and Arthritis. So CIHR is the National Funding Organization for Health Research in Canada. They're funded by the federal government. There are a number of institutes under CHR, and one of them is this Institute for Musculoskeletal Health and Arthritis, or IMHA. And um, I've worked with IMHA over the past few years, um, helping them engage with patients as partners. It's called their Patient Engagement Research Ambassador Program. And that particular group over the past two years has created some free online modules. 
So they're available to anyone. You can be in Canada or outside of Canada. They're available in English and French, and they will help you understand a bit about research, a bit about how research is funded, a bit about how academia works in terms of um, research. And it they also show you how you as a patient can be involved on a research team and maybe some of the things that might help you um, to be a patient partner, some of the things you might want to ask for um, to help you be a patient partner and how you should be included as a team member. So there's four modules. Um, some of them are specific to patient partners because I think it's helpful for patient partners to understand what research looks like and some of the terms and those things. And then some of it's for other members of the research team. So researchers need training in this. Um, physicians who do research need training in patient engagement and research. And so um, that's what the patient engagement research ambassadors have created. Um, they're also narrated. So we've tried to make them super accessible to all different types of people. And they're not long. Um, probably the longest module is between, I don't know, 25 minutes and 40 minutes. And you can come back and log in and log out to take them. And you get certificates for each of the modules that you've completed as well. So I'm really pleased with those. And we know that they're helping lots of people to engage either as patient partners on research teams or to engage with patient partners on research teams. Yeah, it's so great to hear one of our ambassadors at Take a Pain Jack complete one of those modules. And I was like, that's so great that something like this is put into place because I know when I started as a patient partner, I didn't have any sort of like <laughs> formal training. I was just like jumping into it. And I think it was definitely like a learning process for me. And when you get into it, there's just a variety of different researchers you talk to and you have different roles in each project and you don't know what they expect of you, what you should expect of them. And so like having a proper, I mean, now I've learned over time and also like different people that I've talked to kind of helped guide me. It's important for patient partners to know too that researchers generally don't take courses on how to engage patients as partners on their research team. It's not something that they're taught in school. It's not like their scientific methods. And it's something that's just really started within the past 20 years. And so, you know, this is kind of another tool for their toolkit to hopefully help them do a, a much better job. And so I want to end off this podcast episode with an advice segment. So what advice would you give to those who are interested in getting involved as a patient partner, but are too afraid? You do have information and input and insights to offer. So know that, first of all. I think to your point, Natasha, being really almost critical about the type of um, research project or the team that you join is important. So if you're afraid to be involved for whatever reason, I think I would ask the research, the potential research team lots of questions or I know you could reach out to Natasha or you could reach out to us at the Canadian Arthritis Patient Alliance because we get lots of requests for patient partners um, and we can't fill all of those ourselves. And we do want to give other people opportunities. So I would encourage you to reach out. And I would also encourage you, like I said, to ask lots of questions and really think about what the engagement might look like for you, what kind of time you might have to commit. Um, if the research team is, 
you know, willing to do meetings at times that work for you or to Natasha's point, you know, can you pick and choose how you might be engaged? So I would just say do lots of homework, just like you do with um, your own healthcare and um, how you make choices there. I would encourage you to do lots of homework. There are lots of opportunities to be engaged. Thank you so much, Dawn, for coming on this week's episode on Take a Pain Check. We started off talking about your diagnosis journey and kind of the coincidence that you had while working at the Canadian Arthritis Network during that symptomatic period. Then you discussed your expertise as a patient partner as well as a researcher, how that kind of helped you really understand what research was really like. And then we discussed the medications you were on as well as your support system and how you manage or try to manage a work and life balance. And then we dived into how your diagnosis has helped you figure out your career. And then we talked about some of the lifestyle changes you made. You ran me through a day in your life. And to end it off, we talked about your involvement at the Canadian Arthritis Patient Alliance, as well as other institutions and leading patient engagement work. So everyone like, comment, subscribe, check out Don's social media channels, which I will link down below. I will also link the research module link, as well as the Canadian Arthritis Patient Alliance resources that you can check out. And I'll see everyone in two weeks on Take a Paycheck. Thank you so much, Dawn. Bye. Thanks, Natasha. Bye, everyone. No!